0: For more details, please check out our website, www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning, church. It is uh, good for us to be together again on the Lord's Day, to encourage one another um, in the word and fellowship. I must say I am I am uh, particularly excited this morning uh, because uh, the text we're going through this morning. I uh, before this week I thought I knew what it was talking about. I was I was pretty arrogant as I was going to it. Ah, this doesn't need much preparation. And then I started studying it, and boy did the Lord humble me. And um, so I'm excited. I'm excited to share that with you this morning as we as we dig into God's word. Um, and for the children, I'd just like to remind you children, when you have the sheet in front of you, the word that you want to uh, listen for today is the word partiality. The word partiality. Right, let's uh, let's read together God's word from uh, Acts chapter 6. That's where we are at this morning. Acts chapter 6, uh, from verses 1 to 7, will be our focus. Verse 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. One of the more impressive Proofs of God's total sovereignty and control of existence is his ability to use things that are not good to advance his overall plan we often see in the scriptures the Lord intend to use evil acts and things that are not recommended uh, to bring out to bring about his plan of salvation for mankind. The focus of Luke's narrative now, as we enter into chapter 6, turns to two events that are directly responsible for the arrival of the Gospel to the Gentiles. These two events are not good. We would want to avoid these two events if we could. These two events, if they were to happen here at Heritage, we would be distraught. We would be sad. We would be be overwhelmed. And yet these two events lead to the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles. Humanly speaking, these are the events that God uses to move the gospel further into new territory. And what are these two events that Luke now turns his attention to in his narrative? Discrimination in the church against the Hellenists and the unjust killing of Stephen. The discrimination in the church against the Hellenists and the unjust killing of Stephen. And let me just take a moment and and say perhaps if you weren't here when we began to study uh, the, 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 the book of Acts. The book of Acts is organized by Luke. so, so that he can encourage Christians, mainly Theophilus, but Christians in general, so that they might know and be confident in what it is that they believe. And so Luke gathers together all the information and puts it step by step in an orderly and organized fashion to make certain points clear about the origin of the church, about the purpose of the church, and about the goals and the power of the church. And so now he is shifting before we were just seeing one particular side we were seeing the church growing in jerusalem growing and all the power happening there but now luke wants to shift us and tell us hey how did the gospel actually get to the samaritans how did the gospel actually get to the gentiles and so he begins with these he begins with these two very unfortunate and unsavory events but let me just give you a bit of the forest, so that you can understand these two trees. You'll remember that the Lord Jesus told the church in chapter 1 that they will be His witnesses in four places. Do you remember this? There will be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far in the book of Acts, the church has faithfully and powerfully, might one add, witnessed in Jerusalem and we saw two weeks ago that people from all over the Judea from all over Judea were coming and being saved so two of the two of the four places that Jesus said the church will witness have already been covered so far luke now turns his attention to the specific events that lead up to the church witnessing in samaria and to the ends of the earth and the first first critical event that we must know of that eventually led to the gospel going to Samaria is this discrimination that happens here in the church that we have just read that we're going to consider this morning. At this moment, I'm going to spoil the next few weeks for you, but please still do come to church, okay? I'm just going to spoil it and tell you exactly what's going to happen, but but, uh, but I need you to, I need you to see the thread and how all of this connects, but I will still have more to say when you come next week. This is what happens. The Hebrews in the church discriminate against the Hellenists and the church chooses seven Hellenistic men to serve the tables. One of the most prominent of these seven men is Stephen and Stephen is killed for his witness in front of the council and then the church is scattered by persecution, which is the second event, because of Stephen's killing. Philip. The other prominent member of the seven is the first to witness to the Samaritans. Philip, now if you you try and reverse back what I just said, Philip would not have preached to the Samaritans if Stephen was not killed, and Stephen would not have been killed if the apostles had not laid hands on him, and the apostles would not have laid hands on him if there was no discrimination against against the Hellenists in the church. So, Dear Church, as we as we enter this first event that causes problems in the life of the church, I want you to look beyond the mere human factors. I want you to look me beyond the mere human actors and see the grace of God at work, even in the midst of human failing. As God is pushing forward his plans, regardless of what it is that is happening. And with all of that said, with that bit of a primer, let's get into this morning's text. The first thing that shows up here in the text is a problem of division in verse 1. A problem of division. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The, The church in Jerusalem is growing And as we saw last time, they're growing by multitudes at this point. The church is getting huge. We already saw two weeks ago that the church has grown so much that to get Peter's attention, people are hoping for his shadow. And part of this growth means that this Jewish church is now a functioning community within Jerusalem. So within Jerusalem, you had a number of different sects, as in S-E-C-T-S, and communities within the Judaism system. You had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and other groups all around that. And so now this church has grown so much, they meet at Solomon's Colonnade, and they are a functioning group that takes care of its own within Jerusalem. And we saw already that in chapter 4 that Luke tells us, rather remarkably, that there was not a needy person among them meaning among these people here in the church there was not a needy person because people gave what they have for the benefit of the of of the believers for the benefit of those who are here in the church and how they achieved this lack is that those who had more brought it to the apostles and it was distributed to any who had needs but now there is a problem there are two groups of widows here in the church and One is being treated better when it comes to the distribution of food and necessities than the other group Luke tells us that the Hebrews and the Hellenists were getting different treatment If you were a Hebrew widow, you were getting better treatment and if you were a Hellenistic widow, you were not getting as good as, uh, of treatment But who are these Hebrews and Hellenists? I thought we were talking about Jews. Well, both of them are Jews. Both of them are people of Jewish heritage. But they are, for all intents and purposes, different in culture. The Hebrews were Jews who lived in Israel, who spoke Aramaic as their first language, which was the Jewish language at the time, and who generally lived like traditional Jews. These were the traditionalists. And the Hellenists are Jews who are more Greek in their culture. They speak Greek as their first language. And they are culturally more Greek in their way of life and in their way of thinking. And a lot of them, of course, had come to Jerusalem for the feasts and then they got saved. And now they're being added to this community. And a number of them actually come back to Jerusalem after being in Syria or North Africa or wherever it is. They come to come and retire in in Jerusalem to come and retire in their fatherland the simplest way we can explain the difference between these two is that the Hebrews are the poor the pure people from the farm and the Hellenists are the model C's who went to private school that's the simplest way I can put it for you these ones they they're very serious about the language and all the traditions and these ones, they're more, you know, they went to St. John's, you understand. They're, 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 they're more eclectic, you know what I mean? And so there's now, they're, they're the same people, but there's this difference between them. So while they're both Jewish, they are, distinct, they're, they are distinctions. And what is the complaint? The complaint is that the widows of the Hellenists, the model C's in our analogy, they are not being taken care of as well by the Hebrews. I want you to think about the seriousness of this injustice, of this problem. Widows in the ancient world were the most vulnerable people in society, by far, perhaps only eclipsed by orphans. There weren't any retirement plans at that time. And most of the work that was available was for men. And widows, as they were older, they probably could not do as much as they could when they were younger. They couldn't couldn't probably go watch people's babies or do all kinds of things that they were able to do when they were younger. And add to the fact that these widows, these Hellenistic widows, had most likely come from foreign countries, hence they're called Hellenists, and came to live their old age in Jerusalem, means that they probably did not have their normal support system. Because they traveled from far to come and live here. They were, really, they, were, they were really and truly alone. Their friends and their acquaintances were most likely in other countries. And so the church rightly saw that they had a God-given duty to provide for these widows. And of course to also provide for the Hebrew widows, the ones who are, who are from the place. Uh, it, is, it is a God-given duty that the church takes care of them. But the church was failing in her duty. That These widows, the Hellenistic widows, the word that Luke uses there is that they were being neglected. They were being overlooked. The first question you might have is why? Why were they being overlooked? Why is it? What is it about them that caused them to be overlooked? Luke, you can see here in verse 1, says nothing more except to explain that it's a dispute between hellenists and hebrews we are not exactly sure how food distribution happened at this time we know that people brought things and put them at the apostles feet but we are not told how it went from the apostles feet to the people that need it so we're not really sure how or who or why exactly they were being overlooked however it happened it is clear though That because Luke just tells us that it's a dispute between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, that that is the main thing that we are to look to as the cause of them being overlooked. However it happened, it is clear that the Hebrews, when they were distributing food, were preferring their own widows to the Hellenists. They They were preferring and treating well their own widows, the Hebrew widows, to the Hellenists. What we have here, friends, is the sin of partiality. This is the sin of partiality, prejudice. The sin of partiality operates by taking a piece of information regarding the person in front of me, reducing that person in front of me to just that piece of information and treating them with prejudice or favor because of that piece of information. There is either a set of, of information or one specific piece of information. And because of that attribute, I'm going to treat you with favor or prejudice. Fueled, pushed by, influenced by this one thing, whatever this one thing is. This goes beyond just language and culture. It goes to social class. It goes to commonalities. It goes to personal personality traits and in the church the scripture makes it very clear that there is to be no partiality there is to be no making distinctions among ourselves and treating each other better or worse because of those distinctions notice we are not saying that we are to forget about the distinctions and the differences That is foolish. To say, to forget about the distinctions and differences is to just talk hogwash. You have to know who is a widow and who isn't. That's a distinction. You have to know who is young and who is old. That is a distinction. The issue is not the differences or even treating people differently because of the differences. That's actually even not the issue. You would not bat an eye, for example, church, if you saw a young man here after church grabbing another young man by the shoulders and and rubbing and, and roughing him up as a joke, you wouldn't bat an eye at that and you wouldn't bat an eye if these two young men teased each other in that rough way. But you would bat an eye if that same young man went to a Tani in the church and roughed her up that way. I can tell you now, Tani Elaine will not let that happen. <laughs> Uh, but he, they, if he went to a tunny to a in the church and roughed her up that way, and an older lady in the church and grabbed her and roughed her up that way, you would, you, would, you would look at that young man and think, huh, here's a young man who is immature and has no sense as to how he is to conduct himself among his elders. Here's a young man who lacks sense. Here's a young man who needs to be taught. You don't go to an older lady in the church and grab her like you would a, 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 a friend who is your age. And so the, the issue is not that, we, that, that the problem is in treating people differently because of the differences. That's not the issue. Here's the issue. The issue is treating people better or worse because of the distinction. That's where the issue is. Treating people better or worse Because of whatever distinction is in front of you. The issue is, I'm going to care for you because you are like this, and I'm not going to care for you because you are like that. That is where the issue is, and that is the abominable sin. James says it perfectly in James chapter 2, from verse 1, when he says, My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, no, you come and you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, No, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you find in yourself an inclination to treat certain people better or worse because of some external factors, let me exhort you to repent of it. That is sin that is sin and god hates it if there is a a thing that if someone has it or someone is that thing you go out of your way to be kind to them and yet when someone does not have that thing or does not have that thing your body convulses and you simply cannot be kind to them or treat them as well you need to repent you need to repent of that incipient, heart-holding thing that says, this person is better, I'm going to be kind to this person, this person not so much, not worth my time. That is demonic and satanic, and we need to stop that. If you find it as a, as a recurring thing, fear that stays in your heart, stop it. Fight it. It is evil, and it is, it's going to cause a lot of people to be judged by God. Don't be one of them. The story is told of two apples up in a tree that were looking down on the world. The first apple said, look at all those people fighting, robbing, rioting. No one seems willing to get along with his fellow man. Someday we apples will be the only ones left after they've killed each other, and then we will rule the world. And then the the second apple responded, which of us apples will rule, the reds or the greens? The reality is, like these apples, we are conditioned to think in terms of differences and distinctions. And differences and distinctions, in many ways, are important for us to know in order to treat each other appropriately and thoughtfully. They are important for us to know, but they must never lead to partiality of this kind of prejudice that we see in the text in front of us this morning. We will do well, dear church, as I encourage you. We will do well to remember Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In that letter, Paul is working hard. You can hear and you can almost see him sweating, trying to say where there was strife, where there was a wall of difference. God has destroyed that wall and there is now one house with one king over it whose maker and builder is God. Where there was a difference between people that, 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 that had a meaning, there was a meaningful, God has done away with that. And now there is one house, men, women, young, old, Jew, Gentile, white, black, colored Indian. When all of this, poor, rich, you're a CEO somewhere or you, 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 you sweep someone's house, it's the same. Before God's grace, We are now one house and we are to treat each other in light of the grace that we have received, not treat each other worse or better because of how we look or feel. Let me encourage you, church, to work on that, to think through it, to search your heart, wherever it is that you might find this as a temptation, work on it and may God give you grace to overcome that sin. Now let's look at the, that was the problem. There is this, division because of this discrimination that's happening in the church. So the apostles come up in verse 3 and they propose a solution. First oh sorry rather verse 2. Let me read verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "Well, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this particular duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles here show a remarkable aptitude in leadership. They recognize first that this is a problem that cannot be ignored. This is a serious problem. This partiality that's happening here needs cannot be ignored. We can't just move on with life in light of what is happening here. And they recognize, second and importantly, that this problem is going to require mature spiritual leadership to resolve. This problem is going to require a steady hand. This is not such a small problem that it doesn't really matter who deals with it. Let's find the most whoever whoever feels like it whoever's the most immature person among us they can just go ahead and deal with this problem. No, this is a serious problem relating to the material needs of God's people that is festering division and it needs to be dealt with by mature, steady, spiritual hands. And third, that they recognize. Because they're the ones who are in leadership. They're the ones who are the leadership of the church. They recognize that attending to this work themselves would leave their primary task undone. That is to to serve the church in word and prayer. They realize that this requires mature spiritual leadership. And we are the ordained mature spiritual leadership. But man, if we were to just give our time to this, we we will leave the other work undone. And so we need to find somehow to solve the problem. If you've, if you've ever led anything, dear friends, if you've ever led anything, you will appreciate the balancing act that the apostles show here. They didn't really receive a word to act this way. This was just leadership coming from the wisdom and grace that God has given them by His Spirit. In leadership of any kind, there is usually a number of competing things to balance. And these apostles do not neglect... Their primary task for this important task. They, here they make sure that this issue is handled in the church in, the, in a trustworthy way. It is very easy, if you think about it, to ignore certain people and certain problems. It's very easy to, to set aside, ah, widows not getting food, ah, they'll be fine. Let's move on and let's do the important thing of preaching and teaching and praying. Forget about this. They don't do that. Uh, It is very easy, even in society throughout, to not prioritize the voice of the weak in any setting. It's very weak to not prioritize their voice. But the apostles here, by the example, show us another way. And so they propose a solution that the church elect seven men with a good reputation who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They say, elect seven men that we will appoint to this duty... And make sure that the men that you elect are not just new converts or people who are like people who are not uh, solid and people who are untrustworthy. No, elect the cream of the crop. Find the cream of the crop among you of solid men that you can trust with your heart, wholeheartedly. Bring them to us. We will ordain them, and they, and then we will charge them to take over this important duty. These men are to be trustworthy, these men are to be exemplary. Their lives need to leave no question among the people that they serve. They are to be of good repute. And the church is to choose these men among them, and the apostles will ordain them to this work. Now, this is not the point of the text, but I think it is worth noting just on the side. The primary task of the church of Jesus Christ is to advance the gospel declare his message, and live righteously before him. But once people have come to know Christ, and there is a gospel community, uh, this gospel community is now a new covenant community that is ruled by God. And within that covenant community of God, people's needs must be taken care of. Hence, the need to teach people and preach the word is primary However, the practical and material needs of the church are also important. The covenant community takes care of each other, not just spiritually. We are to counsel one another. We are to carry each other's burdens. We are to rejoice with each other in whatever joys we have. We are united, as it were, by a singular yoke. The yoke that is easy, that the Lord Jesus Christ promised. Church community, church rather is a community of people who do not enjoy seeing one of their own going hungry. If you enjoy seeing another Christian going hungry, I can say by the authority of 1st John that you are most likely not a Christian. And in fact, we're repeatedly told that it is the duty of the church to do so, to take care of their own needs within the covenant community. Now. Let me add this. The fact that the new Israel, this covenant community with the spirit of God in their midst is designed as a dependent community has a lot to say about what it is to be a man or a woman. It has a lot to say about what it is to be a man or woman living before God. Listen to me, dear residents of Johannesburg. To exist is to be dependent to exist is to be dependent you are dependent right now on god for your next breath what do you think that next breath you just took where did it come from that one right now where did it come from that heartbeat right now where did it come from is it just some kind of process that just came out of some soup somewhere billions of years ago no it is god you are dependent on him he is the one the Bible tells us in 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 Colossians chapter 1 that Christ is the one who holds everything together. You to exist is to be dependent. Here's another thing. You, you, you real you know this, you sleep a third of your life away. Literally a third of your life you sleep it away. Right? You you you, you are designed as a creature That cannot control everything even just for 24 hours 24 hours do you realize this you can't handle 24 hours just 24 not 90 or 60 or 40 just 24 handle 24 hours no you can't you have to sleep you're designed that way you're you're designed to be a if you try to handle 24 hours on by being awake and doing everything by the end of that you are a mess The systems in your body are failing, things are messed up, you can't think properly, you're irritable, you're a mess. You cannot handle 24 hours. And yet here you are, thinking that you can handle the trials, the stresses, the anxieties, the temptations, the attacks of the evil ones, the stumbling blocks, all on your own. To think that you can handle these massive things when you can't handle 24 hours is foolish. You need... To be dependent on God and his people. I say this as an encouragement. Dear church, there is no shame in being dependent on God's people. There's no shame. There's no shame in asking for help. There's no shame in being this Hellenistic Jew who needs distribution from the church in order to have a meal that day. There is no shame because we are designed and created as dependent beings anyway. In fact, when somebody thinks that they can do everything on their own, and somebody thinks that they can handle everything on their own, the Bible has choice words for that person. That is hubris. And the Bible says, watch out, that person is going to fall. The Bible calls that an inflation. Once you think that your chest is enough, And your mind and faculties is enough to handle all that comes to you. The Bible says that you are inflated, you are puffed up like a balloon and you will pop. The fall will come when you think that way. So let me tell you, let me encourage you saints for emotional support, for food, for help when moving from one apartment to another. I mean, there are times when it feels like this church is a moving company. Like, hey, can somebody help me move? I need to move there. And it's fine. It's wonderful. When everybody says, no, we'll come and we'll come with our resources to help you move from Berario to to Linden. We'll do it because we love you. So let me encourage you. There's no shame in even in writing in, in the WhatsApp group and saying, hey, I'm over here. I need a hand. Do it, dear saints. It is part of how you were designed. Well, as we move on, the, the apostles here do not look down on this need, and they, they prioritize the physical needs of the church by telling the church to elect these seven men to take care of this physical problem. And by, but, in, but in electing these men, we see signs that God had a far more glorious purpose. While the purpose of the apostles and the church was just to elect seven men to handle this problem, god had his sights on a bigger goal on another goal this is an important goal and they did the job but god had a a a a wider goal for these seven men read with me from verse five and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose stephen a man full of faith and of the holy spirit and Philip, and Prochorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they then set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." The congregation, we're told here, that is, they are pleased uh, by the apostles' suggestion. It pleased them. They see that the apostles are handling this rightly, and the congregation is pleased. And they chose seven men. And the election of these seven men points to the expanding work of the church. Dennis Johnson puts it the best. These seven men are God's gateway for the gospel to even more diverse people. God's purpose in these seven men is to loose the church from the temple and from Jerusalem itself and spread it abroad for His purposes. I want to show you just a little bit. It's going to be a bit technical, but I want you to see this so that you can see that this is coming from the test luke emphasizes the theme that these men are going to have a bigger job a, a, a much more bigger role than what they've just been elected for in the way that he writes the narrative there are a few things that are here first these seven men are all hellenists did you notice this Well, you wouldn't have maybe these seven men are all hellenists they're not they're not they're not jews from jerusalem and israel they are actually all hellenists we can see that in their names and while jews in jerusalem did sometimes have greek names these are truly greek names that all the scholars tell me are unusual for palestinians at the time nicanor procurus timon parmenas these are hectic serious greek names that would be just not normal um, in the village imagine you're walking in the village and then you you find someone called jason Hi, you're there yourself. You're walking somewhere. and Hi, Jason. You would be very... Oh, you want to see who Jason is? You expect to see Jason and Santin, not in the village. That's what this is. But there's more to it than just the names. But the names show us that, there's, that these people are all Hellenists. Second, in the list of these seven names, the beginning and end is very revealing. Luke begins... And then says something about the first person and then just lists the names and then the last person he says something about the last person as well. Both of the, the, the opening and the closing are very revealing. Luke describes the first person Stephen and he describes the last person Nicolaus. Stephen is the new major figure in the narrative. He is the main person that God is going to use to separate this Christian church the temple we will see that next week and nicolaus is a proselyte of antioch which means he is a gentile not a jew he is a gentile who had converted to judaism it is very likely that nicolaus is the first recorded non-jew in the christian church his home you see there is antioch The site of the first Gentile church, which we will meet in chapter 11, and the sending point for Paul's Gentile ministry to the West in chapter 13. So these two descriptions have a lot of meaning in them. And third, and this is is possibly the most powerful of them all, in how Luke writes the narrative. Luke wants to to show us in how he writes that these men are not just going to serve tables, that their purpose is much greater. There, is a, there are strong echoes of Numbers 27, which strongly suggests a connection between Moses' anointing of Joshua to succeed him and this episode of the apostles' anointing the seven. For example, let me show you some of these things. When the apostles here say, brothers, choose, elect someone from among you, Luke uses a word which is very unusual for the action of choosing. In fact, the New Testament does not use this word for the action of choosing. The only, this, this, this word usually means to judge or to visit or to deliver. The other times when, when, uh, when Luke is expressing the idea of choice throughout the book of Luke and throughout the book of Acts, he uses entirely different word groups. He uses other words. He never uses this word. And this is particularly interesting because the only other time this word is used in the context of choosing in the entire Bible is Numbers 27, when Moses prays and says to the Lord, let the God of spirits choose a man over this assembly. When you read in the Greek, in the in the Greek Septuagint, it's this very same word that's used there, when other times there are other word groups that are used, and it is it is obvious that Luke is trying to allude to that even just by his use of this word. Joshua himself, in Numbers 27, verse 18, is qualified to lead the, the, the Israel because the Numbers 27 18 says he is full of the spirit in himself, just like these seven. These seven are also full of the, are said to be full of the spirit. Joshua was set apart for leadership when Moses laid his hands on him in Numbers 27, verse 23. And that's exactly... This is the first time we see this happen here where the, the apostles lay hands on someone. They're doing, he's doing, The apostles are doing exactly the same thing that Moses did to Joshua. In the same way here, they lay their hands. These points of contact, right? Just bring it all together. These points of contact between the election of Joshua... And the election of the seven lead us to believe that like Joshua the seven are going to be instrumental in God's plan to expand his kingdom into new Gentile territory that is the point we will see that with Stephen and we will see that with Philip who's another one of the seven as we continue in the story you will remember in the story of Joshua and Moses that Joshua was the one who led Israel into the Canaanite territory of Palestine, a land full of spiritual pollution and darkness, but promised to Israel as an inheritance. Dennis Johnson helps us when he explains it this way. Under Joshua, the land of the Canaanites was purged of its darkness to become God's holy territory. Now the seven servers lead as God's new Israel is scattered out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and through Antioch to the ends of the earth. These seven will carry the conquering light of God's kingdom into regions of Gentile darkness, claiming the entire earth as God's territory. The major plot point regarding these seven men is this. Here's the major plot point. Just, if you struggle with all of that, here's the major plot point. Here's the point. The whole earth will be covered in the glory of the Lord come rain or shine. The whole earth will be covered in the glo- in the glory of the Lord. Come division or unity, come persecution or prosperity, the gospel that brings true life in Christ will definitively cover the entire earth. God will gather His church from all people, from all backgrounds, with all their distinctions and differences. Whether you look like me or not, someone who looks like you will be in the kingdom. Whatever you're from, someone from your culture, the scripture tells us every tribe and every ethnicity, someone from your culture will be in the kingdom and God Himself guarantees it. He will work against his church's lethargy. He will work against his church's own sin. He will work against his own church to to fulfill this if his church is not doing it. It will happen because it is guaranteed by him. This has two implications for us as we close this morning, dear church. Number one, I want to talk to you this morning if you are burdened by sin and sickness and death If you are burdened by the constant strife that we have to contend with as we live life on earth when you find your own people your own tribe your own kinds of people burdening you with their burdensome requirements or their petty arguments if you are here this morning and you desire a a real utopia Perhaps you're not here for Christ, you're not not here as a Christian, you're just here, you you, you want a real utopia, you desire a place where there's no exhaustion and there's no sin, and there's no problems and, and complaints among people. If that describes you, let me tell you, dear friend, that Jesus offers you life. And that life begins when you recognize that you are a part of a problem, you are a part of a system of darkness where you yourself are an active sinner who does the very same things that exhaust you. And once you recognize that and you come to Him and you repent of your sin and ask Him to give you full life, a life of knowing God and walking in His light, He will give it to you. That the kingdom that is coming, this empire that is rising and engulfing the whole world, is an empire of light. It is an empire of life, where the weary find their rest, where the thirsty find drink, where the hungry are fed. But to enter that kingdom, dear friend, to enter into this life I am promising, this eternal life, to enter into it is to renounce all other kings in your life, including yourself is to renounce all of them, renounce yourself, and bow the knee before the one who is called the king of kings, the ruler of this empire. There is no other way in. There is no other utopia. Go ahead, try. Try and find it. There is no other utopia. Try, create, create a political system. I'll sit here with my popcorn. Create a political system that you think is a utopia and watch the weeds come in and mess it up. Create, Find the right economic system. Let's see. The right social, whatever it is. Let's see. You won't find it. Because there is sin. There is sin. To find a utopia is to find a place with no people. The only utopia, the only place, the only kingdom of light, of life, the only kingdom that is promised where people can live is the kingdom of the Son of Man. Let me invite you to it this morning. Talk to someone after the service you want to know more. But let me invite you to that kingdom where there is true life. And to you, dear Christian, my dear friend, I would encourage you this morning to renew your courage and confidence in the rule of King Jesus. See, because King Jesus is going to push his empire to, to go everywhere. So you can trust that his job is He's not slacking on it. He's doing what he said he will do. If you look at the world, my friend, and you see darkness, you're exhausted by the darkness you see around as a Christian, sometimes you wonder, when is it all going to end? Do not despair, dear friend. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth. If you look at the world and you see struggle, see lots of pain, do not despair. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth. Until God's purposes are done, there is no need for you to fret yourself. There is no need to have your heart flutter. Trust in the King whom you, have now, whom you now serve. He will fulfill His promises. What He said will happen. And, when, and you can trust it. And meaning that even for yourself, if you are, yourself you are burdened by sin, yourself are burdened by temptation, yourself just annoyed with how often you mess up, The glory of the Lord will cover even you. There's going to come a time where He will strip you from this dead body that you have. He will strip you from it. And He will rework it. And He will do wonderful things to it. And then He will reattach you to it. And you, you will live and shine bright like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. Be encouraged, dear saints. What the Lord has for us is wonderful. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, you are a good king. You fulfill your promises and you do what you said you will do, even in spite of us. Even when we are comfortable and not moving, you, you do your thing. You, you, you remain, you, you, you keep a remnant. You, you bring your spirit to revitalize and revive so that your purposes can push forward. And in this text, we've seen wonderful things, how you are fulfilling your work. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us this morning that we would not fall into the sin that the church had fallen into. That all of us might fight against the partiality that's in our hearts. And that, Lord, we would strive to love others um, as we love ourselves. No matter what they look like, where they come from, how they speak. Well, we pray, Lord, that you would make this a reality in us. And, Lord, we do confess when we fail. You know us, Lord, we are weak. You know that we have many sins we ask that you'd forgive us where we have failed, where we have not lived right in accordance with this. Just like we know you forgave this church, you love your church and you died for her and you, you forgave this church. Oh Lord Jesus, also forgive us for our weaknesses um, in this, as it relates to partiality and prejudice. And help us, oh Holy Spirit, to go forward, uh, to, to fight against the sin. Help us to leave you by, live by you, O Holy Spirit that we might be putting to death this sin um, in our hearts. And we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you do this work and work in each and every one of us uh, this morning and into this week. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.